At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Did you know that there's a growing global helium shortage? That's right, the world is running out of helium. You know what it's not running out of? Paper money. Right, Stacy? Indeed, you're not. But you know what? You need the helium because of all the paper money, all the printing of money, because helium is not only are the stock prices and everything going up, up, up like it's in a helium balloon, but you need the helium balloon for the celebrations. Everybody's celebrating. President Trump, while we've been here in New York, we're right now, we're in Brooklyn, and he tweeted, stock market, it's record high. Spend your money well. You would think that he's uh, inhaling helium. Uh, and so are the various stocks that make up the S&P 500 and Dow Jones average. But when you scratch the surface, you find that there's nasty accounting fraud going on and all kinds of Wall Street derivative tricks. Is this a real high or just a fake helium high? Exactly. So stock markets hit all-time highs. And we know, as we were covering it here, the Fed continues to intervene up to $250 billion a day in the repo market. So is there disaster or is there not? Why, are, why is this Wall Street class right across the river here? Why are they so coddled? Why are they such big babies? There was actually a banker, by the way, on the news recently, Leon Cooperman. He literally started crying on television because of Elizabeth Warren uh, coming after his money. I'm Leon Cooperman, and they're going to take my toys away, my balloons and my free money from the Fed. And I'm a genius because they give me billions and I stick it into stuff that goes up. And I'm a genius. And <laughs> this guy is, um, I would say, a disgrace to the male gender. He's a disgrace to Wall Street. He's a disgrace as an American. So here we have a situation whereby the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, right here, is intervening daily in the repo markets. The Fed in Washington, D.C. is also continuing some QE sort of measures. We don't know. Uh, but the stock markets are hitting all-time highs. And yet, you look at the most successful investor ever, Warren Buffett. Berkshire Hathaway's cash pile climbed to a record $128 billion in cash after it reported a 14% jump in profit. Obviously, cash is dead money if it's just sitting there in a 0% interest rate world. He's not putting it to use. He's not able to find, I guess, things to invest in. But also, on the other hand, the Fed is printing so much money so fast. His profits are jumping so fast, like it's hard to even spend it. So this is like that the end game of this wealth inequality. There's like there's... The, the, at the bottom of it, we have a black hole, like the people running faster and faster just to stay in place. And the debt keeps on catching up with them and their interest rates are 20% and they're falling sinker faster and faster into debt. On the other side of the balance sheet, of course, is the top. And they're, they're earning so much money that they can't possibly spend it. As we recently covered, there's $4.7 trillion. This is $128 billion of it on Berkshire Hathaway's balance sheet. They can't spend it because it's just, it's just sitting there doing nothing. Warren Buffett is bored. 
you know, Leon Cooperman is bored. You know, when you play Monopoly, if you own a certain number of properties, uh, there's nothing to do except wait for everyone else to go bankrupt. So they're just Warren Buffett or Leon Cooperman. They're just sitting in their office. They're just collecting all the rent. They're round TAs. They're, they don't build anything. They don't invent anything. They don't add anything to the economy. They're just raw TAs. They're oligarchs. They're kleptocrats. And they're bored. They're just waiting for everyone else to go bankrupt. Uh, that's the only thing. That's the, that's the only play left in the global monopoly game of which America is boardwalk and park place. Certainly, Berkshire Hathaway has missed out. The stock markets are on a tear. tear. Uh, I, I saw somebody, I think it was Josh Brown, somebody in, in the investment community here in New York was saying like, this is one of the most hated ever all-time highs they've ever seen. Usually there's giant euphoria. We've seen it many times. People are ecstatic and it can never go down. Here you have a lot of very, very successful big bankers, very well-known uh, analysts of the stock market are all worried. So I guess you always say stocks are climbing a wall of worry. People are de definitely worried, but uh, it keeps on climbing. Well, when you have uh, these trillion-dollar valuations and you have the Fed having gone through the printing of, at this point over the length of this bull market, which started in 1982, I mean, I suppose they probably have printed close to $100 trillion of cash and given it to their friends uh, on Wall Street, their friends of the Fed. And you just enter a period of uh, lethargy. There's really literally nothing left to do. There's nothing left to prove. There's no corporation that hasn't been bought out or uh, merged or acquired in some way. And it's just a matter of waiting for either A, the rebels to come with the torches and the nooses, or B, to uh, be carried out on a stretcher and put in a box somewhere and forgotten about. So here's a tweet from Meltem Demirers, and this is referring to the Berkshire Hathaway $128 billion cash pile, just cash, collecting 0%, even losing because of the inflation. Three of the 10 most valuable public companies in the world are holding more than 10% of their market cap as cash, something, something about opportunity costs of capital, something. She's referring to Zero Hedge's uh, tweet about this, and they show uh, Berkshire Hathaway's pile of cash there, uh, passing Apple and Google now. So those are the other big giant holders of cash. America's capitalism, and capitalism, it refers to capital. And capital, if it's not circulating, is worthless. Capital sitting in a bank account at Berkshire Hathaway is like a rotting, festering pile of horse manure. Unless you spread it out over the field, you don't do anything productive with that manure. So Warren Buffett is literally sitting in a barn full of stinky manure cash, holding his nose, playing tiddlywinks with Charlie Munger or whatever they do over there, and dying from suffocating of the, the stench of his own cash fumes. The Fed has intervened mostly for Wall Street and all of Berkshire Hathaway's companies, by the way, all the insurance companies and all the other banks, Wells Fargo, Wachovia, all the stuff that collapsed during the financial collapse. And as we said, you know, we have negative interest rates, so many things can't be valued anymore. So how do you as an investor even know how to allocate cash if you're a value investor like Warren Buffett? How would well, you as, as you point out, Warren Buffett is underperforming the S&P 500. He's underperforming. Because he, if he simply bought an index fund, like over there at Vanguard, and with no fees, he would be out he'd performing himself. But the, because he thinks he's smart, he's underperforming the S&P. What I suggest is called the reverse Hunger Games. The reverse Hunger Games are randomly picked 10 to 15 billionaires every year and strip them of everything. 
get them down to zero and force them out there naked into the world of commerce and see if they can build it up from scratch again. Introduce risk back into the American capitalist system. You can, once you have a certain amount of money, there's no more risk. You're just clipping coupons for infinity and you have no stake in the game whatsoever. You think Warren Buffett has any risk at this point? No, he's just aggregating wealth risklessly. That's not capitalism, that's a monarchy. We've got a new monarchy aristocracy in America. I say introduce the reverse Hunger Games Randomly picked Leon Cooperman, strip him of everything, strip him naked, and force him into the inner city and say, here, smart guy, let's see what you can do now. Well, also, like what I was saying as well, is Warren Buffett calls himself a value investor. That's a certain sort of investor that just looks for value, long-term value. They're going to hold for five years, 10 years, 15 years. Most investors you see on CNBC are not value investors. They're, in, they're tracing, chasing the trends. They're momentum traders, and they're trading in and out. They're high-frequency traders. Most trades are from high-frequency traders. Warren Buffett is a value investor. But value, the way to understand value is you need time to have some value. So if time no longer has value because of all the interest rate, uh, the negative interest rates around the world, it becomes very difficult to even be a value investor because all there is is the fake stuff, the momentum and whatever uh, the Fed is creating. Right. Go backwards in time to a time when these billionaires were just doing creeper routes and uh, selling uh, soda on the street for nickels and see how they can regain their wealth from uh, today in a world of negative interest rates. Because as you point out, if you were to put Warren Buffett in a room and say, explain the value investing in a world of negative interest rates, I will bet you any amount of cash that he could say absolutely nothing. He would be mute. There's nothing to say. The value has long gone. The, the, the horses jumped the, the fence. JP Morgan, the biggest bank in America. Can we be in a situation where like all of these unicorns in Silicon Valley that were held privately. They were unicorns on paper only. And then they tried to bring it to market and retail investors this time around said, huh, right, we're not paying those numbers. Uh, with Bitcoin, it was the retail investor that got in way before bankers. Here we have a situation where stock markets, everything seems to be booming. Consumer spending is up. Everything looks great. But JP Morgan, the biggest bank in America, who if, they, if Jamie Dimon cries, the Fed really answers the phone and they start bailing out stuff. But J.P. Morgan pours $130 billion of excess cash into bonds in major shift. Quote, the bank is acting like the next recession is here. Everything the bank is doing points that way. They're looking like they think there's a recession coming. They could be wrong. Who knows? But right now, they're acting like that, pouring this money into Well, bonds. the business cycle, which is you find a recession would be up and down, that's over. We're now in a period where J.P. Morgan and others like Buffett and Leon Cooperman are pulling up the drawbridge. The castle is being closed. Everyone who's not a billionaire right now is going to be left into the no man's land, and you're going to be fighting for every scrap of food you can possibly get. The oligarchs, and it started with 9-11, it's culminating in the year 2020, are pulling up the drawbridge and leaving everyone else out there who's not a billionaire to fight amongst themselves for the remaining crumbs and cans of soup. Of course, a lot of people are blaming this exact move from J.P. Morgan for causing the turmoil in the repo market. So that is one thing that can happen, is J.P. Morgan is the whale. They were the London whale. They're the American whale. They're the whale in Hong Kong. They're the whale everywhere around the world. So if they pull liquidity from the market, 
as they have a huge cash pile as well. They could cause everything to crash if they are the market, essentially. I know you have in the past have been the market, and it's a bad place to be, right? Well, look, and JP Morgan, again, proving the point, and this is since 2008, it's not a um, liquidity crisis. It's an insolvency crisis. JP Morgan is insolvent, as is Deutsche Bank. It's not a liquidity issue. They're insolvent. They have what? debts that are a thousand times greater than any possibility of ever paying them. Well, exactly, because the you know, JP Morgan is the largest creditor in the world. They owe they own us. They own Americans, and Americans are in debt and they can't pay anything. So essentially that's why they're also bankrupt. JP Morgan is insolvent. Deutsche Bank is insolvent. All major money center banks in the world are insolvent. And all the money printing in the world is not going to solve the problem because at the end of the day, we're running out of helium. Well, go shop. That's what Donald Trump says. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Well, uh, don't go away. Stay right there. Coming back in a minute. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. Time now to turn to Professor Steve Kane. He's the author of the instant classic, Debunking Economics. He's also got a Patreon page where you basically are like, you know, taking lessons right from Professor Steve Keen. Steve, welcome back. Good to be here, mate. Boy, that Patreon sounds cool. It's going very well. It, it, gets, it lets me be a public intellectual without having to worry about a single university bureaucrat or a university meeting. And I can research what I want to research and I can do it in Europe where most of the activity in both economics and environment is happening. And that's those are my two areas, so I'm delighted by it, and I really am very grateful to my patrons. Yeah, it's fantastic. A lot of people sign up to your Patreon for Steve Kane, and uh, it's a heck of a deal. Now, tell us, Mr. Mr. Professor Steve Kane, the U.S. national debt is now $23 trillion. It passed $22 trillion in February. We're adding about a trillion dollars every eight or nine months. I, I like to move my shoulders around when I say that. It's the trillion-dollar debt dance. Mm. Uh, is this sustainable? What's going on here? Yes, it is sustainable. Uh, we, we obsess about the level of government debt and we ignore private debt. And as myself and Michael Hudson and a, and a, a small band of renegade economists have been saying for a long, long time, government debt's not the problem. Private debt is. Uh, the reason being that the government owns its own bank. And it is creating, when it's creating debt, it's simultaneously creating money that it spends into the, into the physical economy. We use government not just government-created debt, but government-mandated money as our form of commerce. So we need it to be produced by someone. The government produces it. The mirror image of that is the debt that it accumulates. On the other hand, when we borrow money, if you borrow money from a bank, the money they give you comes with debt that you owe back to them. When the government spends money, the government accumulates the debt, but you get the cash. So part of a functional capitalist economy is money created by the government. And, and I know there's all sorts of Austrian critiques of fiat money, et cetera, et cetera. But com capitalist commerce can't happen without money. And the government creating money creates money which the receiver gets without debt. The government carries the debt. But does it matter that the government created money loses its purchasing power continuously? This is one of the hassles people have. They, they want to, they, if you think about the functions of money, we talk about money as a unit of account, uh, as a store of value, and a means of payment. We obsess about the store of value. But in fact, the most important function of money is, the, is the, the means of payment. Now, if you obsess about the store of value, you worry about money losing its value over time, et cetera, et cetera. But if money is losing its value, one thing you'll do as a result of that is spend it. And part of that spending is actually what stimulates economic activity. Hoarding money 
means you get less effectively productivity out of money. So a certain degree of depreciation of money over time actually encourages spending. You get obsessed with about it as a store of value. You don't spend, you get a large amount of cash and a zero economy. But a lot of people uh, are critical of the fact that money is loaned into existence uh, along these lines, yeah. uh, that the basis of capitalism should be capital, and capital is something that accrues an interest that people are putting in the bank and therefore using to fractionally reserve out in the case of the fractional reserve banking system. So without capital, you can't really have capitalism, right? So it, what you're describing, it doesn't sound like capitalism per se. What, how would you describe that system? I describe it the real world. I mean, a lot of people say we should have gold should be money, Bitcoin should be money, um, all these other alternatives money because they don't like uh, first of all, government being involved in creative money, and they also don't like debt being a part. So the of government debt is uh, not a factor. The corporate debt, the bank debt, is a factor. Yeah, so, you know, so in, in, indebtedness of the, of the private sector going up is a problem. Yeah, and we see that trend exacerbating all over the world. Uh, to this day, and, and there seems to be no check in place for that. That is the dangerous one because it's a level of private debt which partly private debt stimulates the economy because when you borrow money, you don't borrow for the sheer pleasure of being in debt, you borrow to spend. And that spending should be the type of capitalist spending you're talking about, where you borrow the money to establish a business, to make goods and services, to sell for money, and that's what gives you a, a functioning, circulating capitalist economy. Instead, what we've got now is bankers are lending money for us to borrow and go and buy an asset and drive its price up and speculate on the price itself. And that gives us a form of financial capital rather than a healthy industrial capitalism that I want us to get back to. And that process of, of borrowing money to gamble on asset prices has driven us into the highest level of private debt in history. So you're worrying about $22 trillion worth of government debt, but I think the level of, uh, of, of, of uh, private debt in America is not to the debt of the non-financial American economy, households and industrial companies to the financial sector is 150% of GDP, which means it's about $40 trillion. So the real worry is the level of private debt. That's ignored by conventional economists, and that's what actually causes the crises of capitalism. Right. And uh, to manage this pile of debt, there's an urgency to keep rates low, uh, to go to the zero bound, and in some places in the world to go negative. Mm. Now, you're a guy who's written a book called Debunking Economics, and you're familiar with the work of Dr. Michael Hudson and others. And the point is that not since the Bronze Age mm. to today have we ever seen an economy where they've introduced negative interest rates. That's never happened. And it's like negative interest rates have been generally applied on the deposits that the private banks have with the central bank. And this is uh, the first level of a malfunctioning system, you get to that particular point. Then now we actually have negative mortgage rates in Denmark, which I find absolutely absurd. So what triggered this uh, need for these negative rates? Is it to service the ever-piling and escalating dial, uh, pile of debt uh, with a way to uh, commit what would be accounting fraud? And negative interest rates mean that time has no value. As a matter of fact, time has less than zero value. Yeah, well, I mean, so the, unless we're going backwards in time, this is just accounting for it. It is crazy. It is a sign of a crazy, dysfunctional system. And it's happened because fundamentally, the economists who are running central banks and making economic policy don't regard private debt as mattering at all. They think the level of private debt has no real impact on the macroeconomy. So they collect the data, but they ignore it. Whereas people like myself and Michael Hudson say, private debt actually is part of demand, part of aggregate demand. When you borrow money, you borrow it to spend. 
So that credit actually increases aggregate demand. The mainstream economists think that you borrow money off another person who's also a non-bank, and therefore that person's spending power goes down, yours goes up. When you repay it, the opposite happens. Overall, they don't think the level of private debt matters. They're wrong because when you borrow money from a bank, it's not borrowing from somebody else's bank account. It's creating debt on one side, which pushes up the bank's assets, creating money on the other, which pushes up its liabilities, which is your deposit account. You then spend that money. So if credit is positive, it boosts demand. If credit is negative, it reduces demand. And that's been driving the actual malfunctioning of the American economy for the last 30 years completely ignored by mainstream economists. So we want to get debt back to the level it was back in the 50s and 60s, when private debt was about 40% to 70% of GDP. That's sustainable. Because we've ignored it, it's now reached 170% during the financial crisis, now 150%. We're living in a credit stagnation world because we have too much private debt. Right, and you end up with these so-called Minsky moments, mm. uh, where the debt is used to finance these assets that are used as collateral to increase the debt pile, and it goes on until it collapses and just giant Ponzi scheme. What do you make of the fact that there's close to $5 trillion held by the, you know, 1%, as they're called, that are uh, yielding basically zero? It's, it's money that is dead money. Yeah. Uh, it's not circulating at all. Uh, there's this idea that there needs to be a continuous bailing out of the economy with these low rates, these artificially low mm -hmm. rates, these negative rates, and yet that money is just sitting uh, collecting dust. It's not circulating $5 trillion worth in the U.S. economy. Why is that? How come it's not? Why is the velocity of money, which is, you know, mm. the bank lending to bank based on the reserves of the other bank, et cetera, that's a, it's a chart. You can look it up. Velocity of money. It's yeah. the health of business activity. It's at record lows. Why, why is that? Well, it's, it's largely because people are carrying so much individual debt. Your reaction to that level of debt is, I'm going to spend less and save money so that I can pay my debt off. But if you, at the individual level, you can save by earning, by spending less than you earn. But at the aggregate level, your spending is somebody else's income. So if you All right, let me save, just cut in for a second. So yeah. the, the $4.7 trillion, it would create more economic activity in the hands of the bottom 50% who have the $2 trillion in wealth. It would be spent. The multiplier effect would see the stock price of the top 1% probably increase by more than that 4.7%. In other yeah. words, it yeah, makes, actually get more if money. you were greedy and you wanted to get your stock prices to go higher, you would let you give that $4.7 trillion as a helicopter money mm. to the bottom part of the economy, who would then go out and spend it, as they do, because they're not going to go buy a Picasso for $200 million. Yeah. They're going to buy a, maybe a house with the money that they get, and they have to put furniture in that house, and they have to you know, buy food for that house, et cetera. Household formation, which is at a record low or mm. at a low, it would increase. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes no sense to have dead money like that. It is dead money because money should be turning over to cause economic activity, as you say. And if you look at, there's a wonderful measure kept by the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve in, this, in the FRED database, they call it, called the velocity of money of zero maturity, which is the best measure we have for money turning over. And you look back in the 1950s and 60s, money turned over about 1.8 times per year. It's like roughly two times a year. So $1 trillion would cause $2 trillion worth of economic activity. It rose rapidly during the 
high inflation period, it hit three and a half times. So one trillion, of course, is it stupidity or apathy? It's stupidity because we actually ignored the fact that it's now turning out about one point one or one point two. So one trillion dollars worth of cash is only causing about one point two trillion dollars worth of GDP. It's because people are so worried about the debt level they have. If we reduce the debt level and got that money also back into the hands of the poor, it would be turning over twice a year rather than once, and we'd have twice the level of economic activity. So there's, you can either a write off the debt, like student debt, mm -hmm. $1.6 I believe, or one, mm -hmm. between $1.3 and $1.6 uh, dollars. You could either strike that off zero, mm -hmm. or you could dump $4.6 or $4.7 in cash into the economy. Either one stimulates the economy and has no impact whatsoever on any corporation's bottom line. Yeah, because the corporations would actually get more cash coming in through the door. Right. But it's not. It's the failure to think at the aggregate level. We if we extrapolate from our individual situation to say that should be government. Let me it ask you work. this: In America, the reason we don't have health care, universal health care, mm -hmm. is because of racism. It's always been the case that the white population doesn't want the black population to have good health care. That's why we don't have health care in America. That's the unstated truth, but it's the mm -hmm. truth. Is this true? Possibly in economics, we could release that four point eight trillion or. Uh, just under $5 trillion of cash into the market. But it will, a lot of it would go to the black population and the racism, the hardened uh, cultural institutionalized racism would be, uh, wouldn't, won't allow that to happen. You're from outside yeah. of the US, you observe these things as an outsider. Your thoughts on that? No, because that would then mean the European Union wouldn't have the same problems and it does have the same problems. There's still the same obsession about saving money at the aggregate level. But your saving at the aggregate level actually reduces income at the, at the individual level, reduces income at the aggregate level. And that's, that's the fallacy of composition that Keynes spoke about back in the 1930s. And people still haven't got their heads around it. I, do you look at the um, machinery and the plumbing of the markets? In other words, in the repo market, the overnight mm. lending rate is busted and you've got 10% on the, you haven't see, ever seen it that's distorted before. Is this a problem in It has happen, happened a few times before, but what's actually happened is that it used to be what's called a corridor system uh, or a collar system for the rate of interest that the central Federal Reserve set. So they'd have a small amount of reserves existing and then they'd simply supply as much as was necessary to keep the rate, you know, 0.25% at either side of the interest rate they've got. When you had the financial crisis, Bernanke increased the amount of money, reserve money in the economy from trivial levels to $2 trillion, $3 trillion worth. All right, got to cut her up there. Steve Kane, Professor Steve Kane of the uh, instant classic, Debunking Economics. Also, Patreon is available for you. Check it out. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Good to be with you, Max. And thanks you for being on the Kaiser Report audience. Until next time, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert saying bye, y'all. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.